0: You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com
1: and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes and customized corporate workshops and events. But We also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called Amp. Amp is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City Live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. Amp. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So this pod might be the longest podcast that we've recorded on getting to yes and. It's with Annie Duke, uh, who is an author, a corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision making space, as well as a special partner focused on decision science at First Round Capital Partners, a seed stage venture fund. She wrote the national bestseller Thinking in Bets. Uh, as a former professional poker player, she has won more than four million dollars in tournament poker. But she's got a Awesome new book. It is called Quit The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Enjoy the pod. <laughs> Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes and.
0: Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job.
1: Duke, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Can we start our conversation with your own story? I mean, up until the age of 26, you were on the path to becoming an academic and a researcher, but then things changed for you.
2: They did. So, yeah, so I did five years worth of graduate work at the University of Pennsylvania. For those who don't know, that means that I'd already done the research for my dissertation, yeah. I'd already done my qualifying exams. Uh, and in fact, I had lined up uh, a set of job talks to go out and get a tenure track position. Uh, so that all went a little sideways when I got sick. I'd been struggling with a stomach illness and right around the time, I'm sure partly because of the stress of it all, yeah. um, I actually landed in the hospital. It just became really intolerable. And I was in the hospital for two weeks, which happened to be the two weeks during my when I should have been in my job talks. But at any rate, I, it was clear that I needed to take some time off. Uh, and so I took, uh, what was supposed to be a leave of absence for a year from graduate school, um, but then found myself without a fellowship Mm -hmm. and I don't come from money. So (laughs) I needed some, Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I started playing poker, uh, just kind of in order to make ends meet. Um, it seemed like, a, you know, it, it sort of fit my needs at the time because I, I didn't feel well every single day. So. You know, I couldn't really do a nine to five. I didn't want to start a new career. I was planning to go back to academics. But just to set the stage for people, um, I think nowadays people are like, oh, you went and played poker. And it doesn't seem that weird. But uh, this was in the 90s. I'm dating myself. Now people know how old I am. Um, (laughs) This was in the 90s when poker was not on television. And there was no internet poker. Uh, So people weren't familiar. Like, they not only weren't watching poker on television, but they didn't know it was a legitimate way to make money. I mean, Mm -hmm. in their mind, it would be like you announcing, like, I've become a professional craps player, which (laughs) you can't do because craps is a losing proposition. Um, Or at the time, really, like, you might as well have been saying, like, I'm dealing drugs. Yeah, I mean, it, it was people really just thought it was strange. So then the question is like, how did I start playing poker? Cause uh, mm. you know, I was just, I was just a woman in graduate school at the time. And it was that my brother, uh, he had already been playing poker professionally for about a decade mm. um before this happened. And in fact, during graduate school, he would fly me out to Las Vegas once a year during the world series of poker for a vacation. Cause gosh knows I could not afford one. Yeah. Um, And so I was like, I knew some people who played poker and I sort of were familiar with this world. And so when I found myself in this situation, kind of just desperately needing uh, cash, he was the one who said, you know, well, why don't you try just playing poker in the meantime? Um, You know, obviously gave me some tips. I'd watched him play quite a bit and, you know, the the rest is history. I mean, I didn't go back to graduate school. Well, actually, wait, I can't say that anymore. I did go Uh back to graduate school last month.
1: Okay. Uh-huh. So, so, so you played poker for what, like almost 20 years, right?
2: 18 years. Yeah.
1: 18 years. And you made some money. Oh, I made a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really a lot of money. Well,
2: I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I won a bunch of stuff. So, uh, I, I won, I have a world series of poker bracelet. I won the tournament of champions. I was, I'm the only woman to have won the NBC national heads up championship, um, played a lot of cash games. It was, I supported my family. My, my, uh, husband who is now acts not because of this though. Um, uh, actually was, you know, taking, helping to take care of the kids mostly. And so yeah. we were really kind of a single income family. So it was my income that was doing that. Um, and then, you know, things got a lot better after, I mean, in some ways things got better, but in some ways things got worse, right. but one of the ways they got better once poker was on television, that endorsements came in as well. Yeah, so, yeah. You could make money just not from playing poker, you know, just like anybody who's a, you know, basketball player or golfer or whatever, a tennis player, you get endorsements. So I was, I was luck, lucky enough to have had enough success to get endorsements.
1: Yeah. So you had to quit this sort of journey, right. And pivot to this, this other place. And, and, and you're writing this book on quitting, which feels informed by all your journeys. Um, and you have a line in the prologue where you say, quote, Persistence is not always the best decision. Certainly not absent of context, and context changes. And this is like a thing that just comes up over and over and over again. Is that we, whenever we're looking for, I, I, if if someone has a business book that's like, here's the seven steps to you know, like total job fulfillment, I will not interview them because because <laughs> context changes. So, and that's the thing, of course, in improvisation we get, right? Because we're always making it up in different con- in, in different contexts. Um so talk to us about that especially through the lens of you talk about grit um and that being different than um we consider grit and I interviewed Angela Duckworth with her book about that.
2: Who's wonderful. Um, Everybody buy yeah. the book if you haven't yet.
1: It's terrific, but but you know, people people like grit, um but they don't necessarily like quitting or quitters.
2: Yeah. So, and, and I actually think this causes some misinterpretation with Angela's work because people yeah. really do like the idea of grit. Um Grit is really synonymous with character, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you know, when we tell our children like, well, you know, you can't quit this thing you hate, it's because we're trying to build character. Um, So kind of in the battle of grit versus quit, Grit is a virtue. I mean, it it's one the day. Grit is a virtue, it's heroism, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And quitting is a vice. I mean, it's synonymous with cowardice. And the thing that I'm trying to get across is like, how silly is that? Because grit and quit are the exact same decision. It's a calibration issue, right? Like mm-hmm. if you choose to stick to something, you're choosing not to quit it. And if you choose to quit something, you're choosing to stick to it. And in fact, once you started something, Um, every day you continue with it is a decision to start anew.
0: Hmm. Um,
2: So, you know, you're, you're, we don't think about that as an active decision, but it is. And when I say context matters, what I mean by that is what, what grid is really meant to do is to get you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile. Because when, when things are worthwhile, they are often hard. I mean, there were lots of hard things about playing poker, um, but, you know, I stuck to it for, for, and, you know, until I decided to retire um, until I decided it wasn't worthwhile for me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, writing a book is really hard,
0: sure. but
2: I, if it's worthwhile. At least the ones that I finished are worthwhile. I mean, I finished all <laughs> the books that I started, but, um, you know, and. But the problem is that while that is true of grit, that it gets you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile, if we take it as just blanket perseverance is good, then what happens is we start sticking to hard things that are not worthwhile. That's right. And that's really bad because here's the issue that we all have. We have a limited time on this planet. Mm -hmm. And every minute that you spend on something that isn't worthwhile, that isn't bringing you happiness, that isn't getting you to actually achieve the things that you want to achieve in your life. That's a minute that you can't spend on something that would help you to to achieve those things. And that is just so heartbreaking when our time is finite.
1: Um, So I love your previous work. Um, And so then when I saw that you were writing a book on on quitting, I got really excited because when I look back and I feel good about my life and my career and and all that, it's defined by three specific quits. Oh, good.
2: Um, I want to hear about them.
1: Okay, so there's the three. Uh, uh, junior year, went to the state finals. I was the starting center forward uh, for our soccer team. We lost. Uh, that summer, I quit soccer. I was like, I, I was tired of getting yelled at, quite frankly, by by the coach. And and then, like, how I, did your parents
2: I, feel about that?
1: They were not happy. Yeah, right. Well, I had a, I had a, a, I was offered a scholarship to go to like Milliken University and play on a full ride, play soccer. And instead, they had to pay for me to go elsewhere and not play soccer. Uh but they had the money. Um so that was that was defining in terms of then moving me into someone who wanted to read books and get interested in I was always interested in the arts but I really p- pushed my way in there. Then I quit my first marriage uh which opened the door for the love of my life uh who I've been married to now for 26 years. Um and then after I wrote my book Yes and I quit my job at Second City um because I just felt like I had hit a dead end and I was able to then pivot at, you know, an older age into, so the first part of my career was all improv on stage, hiring people like Tina Fey and Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell, and now working with academic communities to find like the integration between things like behavioral science and improvisation. Um, and it's all improv off stage. So helping caregivers, helping, you know, uh, other people, and it, it's, it's rich, right? And so I can, it's not like I've lost everything behind me, but, but those quits don't open me up to incredible rich opportunities.
2: Well, I mean, I think this is really important. So first of all, let me just say, like you use the word pivot in there. Yeah. And one of the things I just want to point out to people is that we hate the idea of quitting so much that when we do have to do it, we will use, we just like, it's like quick, it's the Voldemort treatment, like the word that you shall not say. (laughs) Um, And instead we say all these other things. So, so an example was um, Serena Williams just quit professional tennis. And but what she said is I'm not quitting, I'm evolving. Yeah. Um when uh Lindsey Vaughn quit professional skiing, you know, or 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 the Olympics or whatever, she decided she wasn't good, she wasn't going to be doing that anymore competitively. She was going to quit competitive skiing, be, frankly because her body was just yeah. broken.
1: That's right.
2: Um she made an announcement where she said, "My body is yelling at me to stop." Which the last time I checked means she's quitting. She yeah. said But for all my fans out there, I'm not quitting, right? I'm just starting a new chapter, right? right? So, and pivot is the the biggest of these words, the way that we sort of like get around this idea of quitting into something that feels more palatable to us, like starting a new chapter. It's like, Mm -hmm. why do we have to do that? There's nothing wrong with quitting because as you just pointed out, right? Right. When you were playing soccer, that was time that you couldn't spend exploring other things that might bring you joy, like reading, Yeah, right? When you were doing improv, which for a long time, I'm sure was like incredibly fulfilling to you, the world changes and you change. And at some point, maybe it got stale or it just wasn't bringing you the joy that you got. But the time that you were every minute that you were spending on that, whether you enjoyed it or not, was time that you could not explore other opportunities to bring you happiness. Now, when it was bringing you joy, that's reasonable. Yeah, But when it's not bringing you joy, it's no longer reasonable. And the thing is that if you think about what are your overall goals, which is like, you love creativity. You love the idea of like, how do you think on your feet and interact with people in this way that's like really enjoyable, but like on the fly, there are different ways for you to to find fulfillment through that activity. One is improv on stage. The other, you have now found another way. Yeah. But the only way that you could explore that and find that is to have stopped doing the other thing.
1: Literally quitting. I literally literally
2: quit. quitting, not pivoting. You didn't pivot from on-stage improv to something no. else. No. You quit that and you went and did something else. And for me, you know, I'm, I mean, people say to me, look, it, and I'm sure people say this too, it seems like you took a lot of left turns, right? Like I was a graduate student, then I played poker, Then I started giving talks Mm
0: -hmm. in,
2: um, you know, I started giving talks in the space where uh, I was thinking about, like, how does poker inform decision making under uncertainty? And that becomes thinking in bets, which, you know, has yes and in it. Yep. Yep. Okay. so um, and that becomes thinking in bets. And then I quit poker because I really wanted to focus on writing a book that was really informed by my speaking, which I did. And I wrote Thinking and Bets. Then I wrote a few other books. I have a consulting work where I'm thinking, you know, I'm using sort of similar, very similar to you, these things that I did before applied to this, Um, uh, you know, and now I'm back at graduate school, but people will say, oh, it seems like you sort of went all over the place. But like you, I'm sure that's not true. It's I'm really obsessed with the topic of decision making under uncertainty. How is it that we as human beings deal with the fact that when we make decisions, when we choose to start something, we know almost nothing? It's all, you know, forecasting of the future and there's going to be luck involved. So you can see why, like, I was attracted to poker. You can't see anybody's cards. You don't know the cards that are going to come. It's like you're finding out new information after the fact all the time and you sort of have to deal in that environment. But that's what I was studying in graduate school. That's what I do in my consulting work. That's what it's just different ways to find an expression of this thing that I really really love to think about, even in my writing. That's what I write about. So it looks really weird, but it required quitting a lot of things to go to go explore it in a new way, which keeps me excited about the topic.
1: Yeah, I mean like had I not quit, I wouldn't have found myself at the Center for Decision Research at the Booth School of Business creating we did a four-year program there. We had a weekly lab working with scientists creating bespoke improv exercises that showed people i mean yes and is a perfect example it's behavioral economics telling us that people their default position is to do nothing or say no yes and is literally a nudge not to do yeah, that right you know but th- then we were able to get deeper into into the stuff as, as we know we're not rational players and and then it's interesting because i don't know if you know how second sees basically all the art form started but it was a social worker in the 20s and 30s working with immigrant children and she created, oh, I
2: did not know that.
1: Yeah, she created these games. Oh, that's games. amazing. Yeah, to, to have a lot of them didn't have the uh, same language, so a lot of the early games were in gibberish or silence, and then the kids would come together and, you know, play and empathize and communicate, and then her son, Paul Sills, was studying at the University of Chicago, taught the games to his friends, and they opened the first improvisational theater in the country, the Compass Players, in 57. The Second City starts in 59. So it's it's almost like a go-back, right? Like Yeah, that's was, so incredible. What was in the water? Um all right. I have so many notes. I'm going to, I don't want to not talk about this because there was there's a, a metaphor. I, I don't know if it's a metaphor. There's, there's a thing in your book that I've been obsessively thinking about and sharing with people. Okay. And it comes from your conversation with Astro Teller um, around monkeys and pedestals. Oh, yeah. This is the, this is the I've best. Done,
2: can I just say, I've, I've done a bunch of podcasts and very few people have asked me about monkeys and pedestals, which is. How not? because, well, because so. I know why, Why? Uh, I mean, I think I know why, because uh, you have a limited amount of time to talk and they're very interested in this idea of uh, really just wanting to talk about grip versus quit and, and really trying to understand why we're so bad at it. And you know, that we generally get to the decision too late and whatnot. And so once you get to monkeys and pedestals, you're getting down to like this mental model that's helping you to sort of solve the problem in advance but it's a little bit beyond what you, you normally get to in like a okay. shorter conversation. So you have made me very excited
1: Good. that we're
2: going to get to talk about monkeys and pedestals, which is like my
1: favorite thing. Me too. So, so, so you, you have, so probably you make, might want to inform who a- Astro Teller is and then.
2: Yeah. So let me set the stage in two ways. Okay. Way number one, before I say who Astro Teller is, is this, that um, there is a bunch of cognitive debris that we bring into decisions with us about quitting. And a lot of that debris has to do with like the time and energy that we've already put into something that if we feel like we quit it, we'll have wasted that time. You may have felt that a little bit when you were thinking about quitting improv. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like, well, I've put all my time into building this career and so on and so forth. And if I leave, what does it mean? Um, not just for the time and energy that you put into something, but maybe also you're abandoning part of your identity, right? Which is like, that's super hard to do. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're endowed to the work that you created and you don't want to let go of that. Um, and so what you can think about is this, is that every minute that you spend doing something that's no longer worthwhile, you're actually accumulating more of that debris, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're, you're spending more resources on the thing that you're still sticking to more of your identity is getting wrapped into it. You're creating more things that you own, which then now when you go to make the next decision about whether you should leave makes it harder. So we get this kind of like snowballing effect. So that's really hard. So one of the things that we'd like to do is sort of deal with how do we reduce that so that we can sort of get to quitting more easily. So let me just set the stage that way. Yep. Okay, so this brings us to Astro Teller, um, whose real name is Eric Teller, but um, he got nicknamed Astro because of his haircut. Huh, sorry, he got nicknamed Astro because of his haircut in high school, and he just
1: went with it. So, and in a pretty famous lineage too.
2: Yeah, Edward Teller, who's a, a very famous, I <laughs> his, mean, his grandfather. Yeah, his his father was a physicist. I think also yeah, also a scientist. well known. Yeah very well known. And, and his mother was actually quite famous as well. Like, um, so he's, yeah, he's comes from a pretty good lineage. That's for sure. Uh, very, very smart people. Um, and he himself is also brilliant. So he is the CEO of X, which is the, um, innovation hub at Google. Uh, otherwise known as captain of moonshots. That's his other, wow. that's his, that's his real well, is title. That
1: on is. His car- is that on his cards?
2: I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's like, that's, that's his actual title as captain of moonshots. So for those people who aren't familiar with X, what they're trying to do is take ideas from inception to uh, commercialization in five to 10 years. um, And, but they have to be like, make the world 10 X better. Okay. So it's like 10 X better in five to 10 years. That's their, that's their charter. All right, so, they're obviously when they're starting this is an innovation hub. So if we think about like uncertainty around decision making, when they're starting things, it's really uncertain. So they're going to start something, it's kind of going to be kind of their best guess that this is a good use of their resources, which even at Google is limited. Um, but then after they start it, they're going to find out new things, which is like, does this seem like this is still a good thing to be doing? Okay. So uh for him uh he's like totally obsessed with this idea of like, how do you quit well? Because what he recognizes is they really need to be spending their time on the things that really are going to make the world 10X better and try to reduce the amount of time that they're spending on things that aren't. So the way that he gets to this is by this incredible, wonderful, wonderful mental model called monkeys and pedestals. Um, and this is the way it goes. Imagine that you're trying to train a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal in the town square. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I think you would assume that would be a money making endeavor if you were like, sure. you know, standing in Quincy Market. People would throw right. a lot of money in your hat. That would be pretty cool. Um, what he says is that uh, if you're going to tackle that particular problem, the first thing you should do is figure out if you can train the monkey to j- juggle flaming torches. You should not build the pedestal first. All right. So now we can think about monkeys and pedestals. So pedestals are. Things you already know that you can do, right? The monkey is what is the thing that is unknown to me that's going to be the hard thing that I actually have to figure out. And there's no point literally in doing anything else unless I can figure that thing out. So from his perspective, it acts. It's like, all right, here's this world changing idea that you've brought to me. Okay, so let's say that it's uh, we want to um, turn seawater into fuel. This was a project that they actually did. It was called Project Fog- Foghorn. So you can imagine a couple of monkeys in there. Uh the main one, the first one that probably comes to mind is can you do that? Yeah. Right, can you actually turn seawater into fuel? Well, that they already knew because the scientists who came to them who who wanted to do this um had already proven that particular concept. So that monkey is salt. But there's a second monkey which is can you do it at a cost that's going to be competitive? with fossil fuels. Okay? Because if you can't do that, nobody's going to buy it. Yeah. Okay. So they then started exploring that particular problem and it turned out that that was actually a really big problem. It was very expensive to do this because uh you had to think about well how are we actually go- going to get the infrastructure out in the sea to be able to sort of extract the seawater and turn that into fuel. Um, And their first thought was to piggyback it on desalinization plants, but it turns out that there just aren't enough of those. So you're going to have to build a bunch of them. And in the end, what they figured out is there's no way we can make this competitive with gas. So okay. they just, they didn't do any, you know, they said, no, that we have to stop this. Um, So that's, I think, a, a reasonable example of monkeys and pedestals. One of my favorite examples though, comes from, uh, and I wonder, by the way, if you want to, editor, if you want to take out the foghorn example, go ahead. Cause the next no. example might be better. No, no,
0: no. Um, but
2: it. one of my favorite examples actually, which is sort of a, the opposite of the use of monkeys and pedestals, and uh-huh. uh, sort of how you don't want to approach things, uh, comes from at uh, the California bullet train. So, oh, um, story. yeah. So for, for those people who aren't familiar with it, <laughs> so, in California, they had the idea, you know, as they do in many other places like Japan, that they were going to build high-speed rail
0: sure.
2: that was going to connect Silicon Valley and San Francisco to the north to uh, LA and San Diego. And you can imagine why this would be a really good thing. Those are the economic drivers of, of you know, the economy in in, Phila- in, sorry, in Philadelphia, which is where I live. Sorry. They are the economic drivers of the state. Uh, mm-hmm. There's lots and lots of economic prosperity in those two uh, areas. But, you know, in between is not nearly as pros- prosperous. And so uh, and secondly, uh, the housing markets there are very congested. So the idea was, well, it, look, at if you can connect by high speed rail and you can make it easier for, for people to commute, then that's going to help bring prosper- prosperity to the interior. Um, And uh, it's going to relieve these congested housing markets because people are going to be live able to live much farther away you know, uh, as they compute into those, into Mm -hmm. those cities. All right. So in, they started the idea in 2008 and 2010, they floated a bond issue. Uh, They issued a bond, which was uh, $9 billion that got approved by the taxpayers. The total estimated budget was going to be $33 billion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the timeline was such that they felt that uh, the line would be partially operational uh, in 2021 and actually producing revenue. And that combined with public, private partnerships would make it uh, net positive revenue that would then self-fund the rest of construction. Okay. So yeah. that's what, that was what they thought. So um, the first piece of track, the first uh, section of track that they approve is between um, Madeira and Fresno. Mm-hmm. Now, Madeira and Fresno is nowhere near San Francisco and it's nowhere oh. near LA. It's like literally in the middle Mm -hmm. and it happens to be on flat land. Mm -hmm. Now, question for you, Kelly, (laughs) do you think that we already know how to build railroad track on flat land?
1: Yeah, we're good at that.
2: We're very good at that. So notice they're starting with a pedestal, right? This is something that you already know that you can do. And they're starting with, with this track. Okay. So that gets delayed by five years anyway, they break ground in 2015. uh, And they start building that, that section of track. And then somewhere around like 2018, they figure out this, oops, we have a problem. And the problem is two really big mountain ranges. So one, the smaller of the mountain ranges is the Tehachapi Mountains, which are to the north of LA and south of Bakersfield. So there's a reason why, like people in Bakersfield don't really work in LA. It's because there's this big mountain range in the way. Yeah. Okay? And then the second, which is even a bigger problem, is the Diablo Range and specifically the Pacheco Pass, which you have to go over to get from Silicon Valley basically to anything to the to the south of it. That's a very big. Mountain range. And what they realize is, oh no, we haven't thought about the engineering problem that these mountain ranges might actually present. And we didn't really think about whether we could actually successfully like blast through them and then build track that was going to be safe, that was going to get these trains through. And, uh, oh, that presents a lot of uncertainty. And by the way, our budget is now like over $80 billion. And we're not even sure if that's right because we really don't know if it's going to work. Didn't no one give these people a map? Well, this is the thing. It's like, it's not like there was some kind of like geological catastrophe that created the mountain ranges. they were no, there for there. like millions of years. So, oh. so, but they didn't think about it. They weren't like, oh, what about the mountains? So, so now this is, this is where the story it really gets, gets
0: nuts. Yeah.
2: So they figure out, oh my gosh, these mountain ranges may be a problem. And uh, so it goes to Gav- Gavin Newsom. The oh, governor this
1: makes me sad. This makes me sad. Handsome Gavin Newsom.
2: Yes. Handsome Gavin Newsom. And they say, okay, like, what do you want to do here? <laughs> and um, that seems like it'd be a really good time to say either like maybe we shouldn't build this at all, or uh, maybe we should solve this mountain problem over here before we build any more track
0: That's right. on flat
2: land, which is right. like, but instead what they do is they say, okay, yeah, these mountains are a problem. So what we're going to do is we're going to build track between Bakersfield and Merced Again, to the north of the Ch- Chubby Mountain. Like, it's, again, on flat land. And then after that, we're going to build track between San Francisco and Silicon Valley, which is to the north of the Diablo
0: Range. Right, right, so right. it's like,
2: we'll build more flat track and more flat track. And meanwhile, they haven't solved for the monkeys. As of today, no part of the line is operational. And the budget has exploded to $105 billion at this point. So now imagine- and that, doesn't include,
1: that doesn't include blasting through- Mountain.
2: They're sort of trying to account for it for it, so that's part of the reason why it's gone to one hundred and five billion dollars. But they don't really know. Yeah, that's That's the problem. They say it's it's very uncertain. So let's think about if you just monkeys and pedestal that thing, right? It would be like, okay, uh, hey, we're thinking about building this. There's two mountain ranges. Let's do an engineering feasibility study before we build any track, and we're just gonna spend the money on the feasibility study. Right. Before we build any track and figure out so that we can figure out whether this is actually worth pursuing, because any track that we build anywhere else is a pedestal. And this is the, the issue is that not only does it cause you to spend a bunch of resources that, you know, up to, to date, I think they've spent nine billion dollars so far-ish. Mm-hmm. Um on something where they haven't even solved for the big problem. Not only does it cause you to spend resources on things that aren't really worthwhile, but it creates the illusion of progress. That's it. Right? That's Which it. is a really big problem, right? right? So they're like, but look at all the progress that we've made. But in reality, they've made zero progress because they already knew that they could build that stuff. So where Astro Teller's insight is so great is like tackle the hard thing first so that you even understand whether it's worthwhile to do anything else. Beware of false progress, right? And then here's a third thing. Be careful because when you come up against a monkey that's really hard to solve, you're gonna turn to pedestal building rather than quit, which is exactly what you can see that California did. When they finally butted up against those mountains and said, ooh, this is really hard. Did they abandon and quit? No, they just built more, they turned to more pedestals. So that, because you'd rather do that than walk away. Um, And that's what like Astro Teller is so obsessed with. So he says, you know, we approach everything using monkeys because from his point of view, if we spend $2 million to try to figure out, you know, and then figure out that, oops, it doesn't work. But if we hadn't done that, we would have spent $9 billion. Yeah, it's not that we wasted two billion dollars; it's that we saved ourselves seven billion dollars. So he's just trying to get there quicker in order to make sure that he can free his resources up to get somewhere, you know, that he really wants to go. And I think one of the things that I love about X is that the name X is actually a monkeys and pedestals exercise because when they were starting the innovation hub, unlike a lot of people who spend a whole lot of time on their logo and their name and their business card, they were like. We'll just call it X for now as a placeholder because the name isn't important. Hmm. Because it's a pedestal. Yeah. Right. And and so and then they, they X just kind of stuck. Which like I I so totally love that X is actually X came out of the fact that recognizing the name is the pedestal. But here here's the thing, and I'm sure that you see this in the groups that you work with. Like this is the opposite of the way that most people approach projects. Cause what does everybody say when they start a project? Well, what's the low hanging fruit? We should tackle low-hanging that. Group. Yep. Right, and it's like, uh, okay, but the low-hanging fruit, by definition, is pedestals because you already know you can do it. I mean, track between Bakersfield and Mer- Merced is low-hanging fruit,
1: right? Like, but but ultimately meaningless.
2: Me, well, it's it's not ultimately meaningless if you can tackle the monkey. Yeah, they do the
1: other thing, but they right. they don't know that they can do that.
2: But they don't know they can do that. So if you have solved the monkey, so you've unlocked the system, then the low-hanging fruit is not meaningless because you do actually end up having to do that in order to complete. But you should certainly not be doing that first, number one. And you should not then do more of that after you figure out that there's some monkeys who need to juggle some flaming torches over there.
1: I, this, this when, okay, so I read this, immediately told it to my wife, which is what I do. And she's like, oh, wow. And then have been telling people at work. And we all had the same reaction is we start to take this mental account of all the pedestals we build. We start to like, because I'm a maker, right? I I, mm-hmm. I, I come up with a, a, all different kinds of original shows, some of which... And when I've done it well, it's, it's when I've worked on the monkey and and very much in particular, um, uh, I have a story in my book about the night that Renee Fleming came to the show and the box office person didn't know who she was and accidentally put her in the show where we were illegally sampling her voice throughout the entire production. (laughs) And then she goes up to the music director who's sweating bullets and she's like, uh, I'm not going to sue you, uh, but I, I'm interested in potentially working with you. And he has my card and he gave it to her. And and we talked about a collaboration. And I said, you know, this could be a great idea. Can we get funding for a year uh, for us to basically explore each other's art form, do some workshops, maybe try out some stuff. And if at the end of that year, it feels like we have something, we'll know what it is. And so we just took our time and then we knew we were like, no, we've got a show. And we did the second city guide. Uh, to the opera at lyric opera with Sir Patrick Stewart and Renee and huge That's so hit. amazing. And yeah it was it was it was amazing. Conversely, <laughs> I got the rights to the hockey movie Slapshot because oh,
2: I was sure Paul Lumen, right? <laughs> yes. I <laughs> was
1: sure that we could c- create a stage version that would sell like hotcakes in Canada. Um and uh, rather than test out with people or ask people questions about whether you no, know, we went ahead and opened and no one came. Because women buy tickets to theater and they're tired of hockey.
2: Yes. Well, so, especially in Canada.
1: <laughs> especially in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, and, and, you know, you, the way you get around this and I'm reading, um, uh, Max baserman has got a new book called complicit. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and I just had the section where he's like, talk to people <laughs> like, and then potentially you won't be complicit if you talk to people about what you're involved and in, they might see something that you don't, um, real quick note on Astro Teller. I have a bunch of friends who worked on Veep, uh, and mm-hmm. they, interviewed him as part of like the creative process and he didn't like their line of questioning and he was wearing roller skates and when he went to sort of like storm out of the room he had a hard time because he couldn't get his roller skates detached from the table
2: oh my god that is so great it's i the, love it, was, that.
1: it was the best thing in the world and these but just well,
2: so so listen there's there's a news story that i think is so awesome in the context of this monkeys and pedestals thing so you know yeah. that um so have you heard of the hyperloop Yes. Um, okay, so uh, the Hyperloop is supposed to be like this high-speed rail, right? Yep. That's going to use like get people where they want to go, like super fast. Um, basically, like using vacuum tube technology, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to it's going to make people go like super duper 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 fast. So the Hyperloop, interestingly enough, so Virgin is developing it, right? Right. So the Hyperloop is something that actually X considered. Um, but they monkeys and pedestaled it. So okay. when, when they're giving presentations, they actually have like hashtag monkey, um, uh, uh, on, on the presentations. It's something that, that they do. And so when they were thinking about the hyperloop, there, there were basically two monkeys that they, they identified. So the thing that they knew was that, uh, they could probably build the track. It, it would be fine. Like they could, they could sort of do the technology that would get, uh, things to go very fast. But the thing that they did not know was could you stop and start safely enough? to get passengers on and off. So that was a big unknown, it was a monkey. Um and as they thought about that particular monkey, there was the problem which is they sort of realized you know, in order to really know that you have to get the train all the way up to speed. Um mm-hmm. and in order to do that, you basically have to build the whole thing. So it's to your point about like Max Bazerman like talk to people and test it out and try to figure it out. They sort of realized well there's no re- really way to do that. Like you have to build the whole system uh, or at least a lot of it in order to actually get the train up to speed. So you can figure out like, can we start and stop safely? And then there was a second problem, which sort of as Astro Teller said, and I'm going to, I'm going to give you the quote. He said um, that there was a big hurdle about sort of the regulatory stuff. Um, because what he said is like, at X we're Peter pans with PhDs. We're not experts on zoning or eminent domain or like any of that stuff. So that was just like a big deal for them. So they had these two problems that they saw. And so they ended up not doing it because another thing that they really sort of in this monkeys and pedestals world, one thing that, that Astro Teller really understands is that if you're going to start something, you pr- should prioritize things where even if it doesn't work, you get something out of it. Right. Right, so, like maybe you're doing a project like Loon, which is trying to connect get get people internet by connecting balloons to each other uh, mm-hmm. up uh, in the remote areas, um and you're going to have to you know you're in order to do that, you're developing laser technology, but even if it fails, you get the laser technology out of it, which you can then use to another project for yeah. a project, which is something that actually happened there and this in this case, he said, well, if we have to build the whole thing to figure out if it works, like what are we going to get out of it, right? if it yep. fails. So he didn't like that part, but also he didn't like this other part. So he said no, because of those two monkeys. So there's an article in the New York times right now, um, which is basically like, uh Oh, Virgin just ran into some monkeys headlong. So the first was that they've only built enough track to, and I, I just want to get it right. They've, they've built enough track uh that just got it to a sixth of the speed
0: uh-huh. that it
2: needs to get to. Uh And that was supposed to be proof of concept. Right. Which obviously isn't the monkey. Like no. you've got to get it all the, the way to speed. But now they happen to have run into these more mundane problems of regulatory, financial and political hur- hurdles that are making it really difficult. And that the project may now be doomed. Right. So so it's really interesting because. Astro Teller, they, they considered this project, identified these two monkeys, and then decided not to do it. And here you have Virgin, which is now in the New York Times, running literally headlong into these two, these two problems because they've only built enough track to get it to a sixth of the speed. So they haven't proved anything there. And now they are running into the hurdles, those regulatory hurdles that, as Astro said, we're just, Peter Pan's with PhDs, like, yeah. that's going to be like really hard for us. Um, and what they're saying, it, at least in this article, they're saying that the project may be doomed because of that. And so I, that, you know, this just happened. So I don't get to get that coda in, right. in the book quick. Cause you know, you, just, you have to publish it at some point you have to quit writing. Yeah.
1: That's right. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good LinkedIn article. <laughs>
2: It is, a, it is a good LinkedIn article. Um, I'm going to put it in my newsletter. But okay. uh, but I mean, I, di- I just think that's so interesting, right? So like, think about all the time and energy that X freed up um, by figuring that out. And here's the interesting thing. When they considered that hyperloop, um, this is, I'm going to tell you how long it took them to figure out they shouldn't do it. I think you're going to think this is hilarious.
0: Hmm.
2: 15 minutes.
0: Oh, wow. You know?
2: That's how long they discussed it, 15 minutes. So they figured out really, really fast that what the problems were. Whereas I don't know how long Virgin has been working on this, but they just ran into them eventually, right? And if we go back to the bullet train, like, look, if somebody had just said, oh, there's mountains in the way back in 2010, (laughs) you know, okay, you do a feasibility study. Maybe you solve it, maybe you don't, but you certainly find out much faster before you've spent so much of the taxpayer's money. Um, that it's it just feels really hard to walk away from it at that point.
1: So this is this is why this runs up to why I think Second City has been so successful. It's over sixty years. We only do original work. So I don't know another art form that is just yeah. putting out new. Yeah. But but and I you probably don't know how this is set up, but Second City has two acts of the scripted content. That's the review you're buying, and then most nights we have a third act late night. It's free. So you can just come off the street and that's where the cast is improvising. And when we're writing a show, that's where we're testing out material. So we're, we're rapid prototyping from the audience and they're, if they're not laughing at a scene, we throw it away. And if they really laugh at a scene, we then put that during our process into the scripted part, throw out an old scene and then it gradually removes it. And I, I I sort of made my name here in 1995, producing a show called Pinata Full of Bees, which sort of broke the form. Uh, the, Famous film director, Adam McKay, who also produced succession, was in the cast and Rachel Dratch. And one they were, exper- they were very highly exper- experimental. And so it was a very experimental show. Not all the experiments worked. And the one that I remember that um, was terrible is they decided they were trying to punk the audience. And uh, one of the actors, Scott Adsit, who's later on 30 Rock, comes out, a very good actor. And he says, um, President Clinton's been shot. This is during the improv set. And if you need to go, please go. We're going to bring out a television set. And if you want to watch the news with us, that's great. So they bring out the television set. All cast sits in front of the television set with their backs to the audience. And the television set, set just starts playing sports bloopers. And this, they keep this going until every audience member leaves. And um, I had to field <laughs> so many angry phone calls the next day. However, no, so, so that that's like, up so up.
2: can I just say that's very like war of the worlds?
1: Oh, it's terrible. And, and it's, it's, it's uh un- unfair, unethical, I think, to the audience. However, it did inspire the opener of the show where we planted John Glazer, one of the actors, uh, as a potential volunteer. Um, and so everyone thought he was a volunteer cause he was sitting before the show and they saw him drinking or whatever, and he comes on stage and they, they do this mock fight. So we're, it like opened the door for the, oh, we want to play with this reality of audience and the, and the rest of the show did that as well. And we wouldn't have got there without this, this complete failure. failure.
2: <laughs> but it wasn't a failure.
1: No. And it was a tiny bet. Yeah. You know, just a tiny bet. And and yeah. look, I, you know, I gave some people free tickets to come back and, 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 and you know, that, that worked, um, all right. There's so much we could talk about, and I know we're running up on our time, but um, when I had no idea, and I wonder if you just discovered this during your research uh, about Sears and the very-
2: You're asking me about all the things nobody asked me about. I'm so excited.
1: All right. Well, okay. So, you know, so many business books have the Sears failure story, um, but none right? of them, none of them talk about the iceberg that was underneath. Right. Okay. Okay.
2: Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. All right. So this has to do with like, you know, look, what's the whole point of quitting things, right? It's quit the stuff that isn't working so that you can spend your time on stuff that is your story just now about like the Clinton fiasco. Um, yeah. oh, and when I say that it could be so many things, it could be um, so many but things. you're, you're Clinton fiasco. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, so, uh, the the thing about that is that you tried it, it didn't work, but then that allowed you to sort of see some other things and free you up. So so it's not like you were like, that didn't work, but I was right. And it's a great piece. And we just need to tweak it, which is what a lot of people do in the face of that. Right. I mean, I think that people in improv probably have a, a different mindset. That's a little bit more flexible, but that's what a lot of people do. Oh, if we just change it a little bit, if we just do this, if we whatever you know if we make it more obvious that he hasn't died right away i don't (laughs) but they would continue instead you just went oops that didn't work but i am trying to like there's a goal that i'm trying to get to let me try to get there a different way um it's such a good example right and it's how a lot of comedy is born right like Mm -hmm. richard pryor famously would just go in and like say stuff and the audience would literally be booing him but like 30 days later he would yeah yeah 30 days later, he'd have an album. So he'd go, oh, that was kind of funny. And he'd keep that, but uh, everything else he'd throw out. So this is the goal of quitting. Try stuff, find out the stuff that's working, stick with that, find out the stuff that isn't working, quit that so that you can spend more time on the stuff that is working. Okay. So this is going to bring us to Sears.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So I'm sure you, Sears retail company, right? They have stores, you go in, you buy stuff, uh, kind of like all purpose. You can get a hammer or uh, some
1: high heels. Um, the famous catalog or, for many years.
2: Right, exactly. Uh, you can buy a carburetor. Um, so it started in the late 1800s. As you said, as the book of bargains, actually, um, it was like 512 pages long, a catalog. And it was right as the, the mail service was starting to really get going. And the idea was to be able to bring things to people in rural areas that they could not get uh, because they did not live in cities. So, you know, if you lived in a rural area, it was like hard to get a bike, for example, but you could order a bike on uh, on Sears. I think at some point you could, I think there was some point at which you could actually like order a house oh, wow. <laughs> in the Sears catalog. I think, I mean, you could really get anything yeah. um, there. So so that was a very booming business. And when it IPO'd uh, in the 1920s, um, Sears, I himself I, I think was worth like 26 million dollars or something which like in the, that was a lot of money in the 1920s it was a lot of money today uh, but it was a lot of money in the 1920s um so this was like this was a huge 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 IPO um it was worth tons um so we we know that and then and then what happened was that uh as people started to get cars um their business started to falter a little bit, their catalog business started to do worse because people were more mobile and they could sort of drive places. And so then they, they said, okay, we're not just going to have the catalog. We're going to build physical locations. We'll have physical stores that people are going to drive to um, that, that could, you know, worked out really well um, by the 1950s they represented 1% of GDP, GNP rather of this America, of America, mm-hmm. 1% of the gross national product. So this was like a big store, like everybody shopped there. But then what happens is as we start to sort of roll into the seventies, they start to experience some challenges in their business, mainly from uh both sides, from, from the side of like discount retailers, like the Walmarts and the Kmarts and eventually the Targets, which are kind of crowding them out at the bottom, but then also from high-end retailers like Neiman Marcus and so on and so forth that are kind of crowding them out at the top. And they're they're just like, they're having trouble sort of finding their place at that point in the retail market. Um, Obviously, they're not kind of as scrappy as like a Kmart um, you know, they've got more administration and things like that. And they 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 end up sort of not being able to compete. And by the 90s, they're no longer the number one retailer. And from there, the story is incredibly well-known. Um, they merged at some point, uh, I think in the 2000s or something with Kmart, which was called by one magazine, a, a double suicide, <laughs> I oh, think no. because, well, because both of them were doing really badly, right? Yeah. Like it was like, at that point, Walmart and Target had sort of won the day and it was just sort of like, so that's why they called it a double suicide. Um, anyway, it ends up going, it ends up going bankrupt. Okay, so that's the story that we all know about Sears. It's what you read in business books and so on and so forth. But I'm gonna tell you a little bit of a different story about Sears, which has to do with your improv thing. Yeah. Right? Like, are you sticking with the Clinton bit or are you saying, mm, let me switch to something that's working better? So uh, Sears was not just a retailer, they were also a financial services company. Mm-hmm. I bet you didn't know that. Did so uh, it started back in the 1800s because they had to um, offer their uh, customers credit. Yeah. So they had a banking division. Um, and then in the 30s, right around the time that I said, like, oh, they were having trouble because cars were coming around. So they started to create uh, physical locations. Someone had an aha in the company and said, you know, people, there's these newfangled cars and they're driving them to our locations. Uh, people need insurance for those things. And so they founded a company. I don't know if you've heard of it. You'll have to tell me. It's called Allstate Insurance. <laughs> have you heard of that?
1: The Good Hands people. Yeah, I've heard of it. The good
2: Hands people. Yes, the guy from Twenty Four.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Uh huh. The president from Twenty Four who tells us to go buy it. So, um, so they found Allstate Insurance. Uh, originally, they literally had desks in the stores where people could come in and buy insurance for their cars. And then eventually, obviously, they spun off like into their own locations, uh, and they started selling more than car insurance, and they become the biggest insurer of personal liability. Um, so, very big company. I believe um, I, I might get this wrong. I mean, people should read my book to make sure that I've got this particular thing right because I'm not sure. But I think its market cap today is forty billion dollars. Wow! I know. Okay, so now you've got you've got um, Allstate Insurance. Sears owns that. They they founded it. In fact. Then in the seventies, they buy Dean Witter, which uh, for people who are old like me uh, was a stockbroker. Um, uh, and I think someone made the joke at some point, like, "Oh, people go to Sears and they buy stocks and socks." Oh, <laughs> something yeah, something like that. It, there was some joke about it. But at any rate, they 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 acquire Dean Witter and they also start their own credit card. Right, so they had the Sears credit card and then they create the discover card which you can use outside of Sears that becomes an all purpose card. Yep. Okay. So uh, all right, so they own Dean Witter and discover card. Hmm. All right. And then they also have Coldwell Banker.
1: They, the which they acquired, engine. right?
2: Yeah, they acquired that. Yeah. So, um so uh so now this is a pretty booming business here. Sure. Um yeah. And they're all worth a lot. So Coldwell, you know, I told you, I think the market cap for Allstate, I think, alone is like $40 billion. Uh, Coldwell Banker ended up merging with some other things to create a company called Rheology, which is worth about $2.2 $2 billion, I think. Um, And then Dean Witter Discover, they were one thing at the time. It's hard to say exactly, but uh, because they got acquired by Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do know is that at the time of the acquisition, they represented 40% of Morgan Stanley's worth. So, I mean, I guess we can sort of project into the future and say Morgan Stanley is worth a lot of money. Um, And then Morgan Stanley actually spun off Discover for quite a bit of money. Okay. So, I, I don't know about you, but like, I, when I learned that I'm wondering, I'm like, well, wait a minute. How did, how on earth did Sears go broke? This doesn't make any sense. Like, they have Allstate Insurance, they have Dean Witter Discover, they have Coldwell Banker. These things are all thriving and booming and yet they went broke. That seems very odd. Well, here's what happened. So in the 90s, remember I said in the 90s is when Target, at that time, Target was uh, new, but sorry, Walmart and Kmart are both beating them. So Target is, is new, but Walmart and Kmart um, are now beating Sears. So Sears, is the retail part of the business is, is now shrinking and in fact starts to lose money. So, but the financial services part of the business is like making money hand over fist. So the shareholders are getting kind of annoyed, right? Because the retail business is losing so much money. So the question is what to do, what to do. Uh, And the board decides that what they really need to do is get back to their retailing roots. Mm. Uh, Because, I mean, why? I don't know. Their retailing roots, I guess, because they're a retailer. I mean, at least that's how they define themselves. That's how they see their identity. That's how the public sees them. So in a series of decisions across a, a little bit, they sell off Allstate in order to, I guess, get capital to save, to get back to their retailing roots. They sell off, obviously, Dean or Discover, and they sell off Cold War Banker, Um, and then they go bankrupt. Yeah. So I, I think that this is such a good example, right? Like they just decided to keep with the Clinton bit.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And that, that's exactly what they did.
1: And then no no one bought tickets to that show. No,
2: no one bought tickets to that show for sure.
1: Um, so and, so the opposite though of this is I remember my very first CD player, which was Phillips. Yeah. And they are no longer an electronics company the, or a light bulb company or, or even more. Yeah. Okay. I knew about the light bulb first. Yes. So they started
2: off as a light lighting company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I mean, look, here, here's the thing with Sears, right? Like what went wrong there? Um, it's in their statement, we want to get back to our retailing roots, right? Like their identity is a retailer identity. and they do yeah. not want to walk away from yep. that. Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. So they decide they're going to double down on the thing that they're known for, their identity, and they're going to sell all the stuff that by the way, nobody even knows they own. Like even at the time, if you had said who owns all-state insurance, they would have been like, I don't know, all-state insurance. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right? That's what I thought. Like
2: nobody would have said, Oh, see, so like it just wasn't a well-known thing. It wasn't part of their identity. They didn't, they weren't identified with it. Okay, so so this is, I think, where this decision generates from. Now we take Phillips. Okay, so Phillips is a, a same problem, very yep. strongly identified with something, light bulbs. If you did t- it said Phillips on the cart and it says Phillips on the light bulb, when you have to change it, you see the word Phillips on it. Okay. So um, so they were a lighting company, but back in the day, the Phillips brothers uh started an innovation hub. They didn't call it Axe. I don't know if it had a name. Uh AstroTeller was not the head of it. Um, no. but anyway, they started an inv- innovation hub. Um, and, uh, one of the first innovations was, uh, in the health space because it was, it was creating, uh, x-ray tubes, which yeah. is obviously, you know, health lighting adjacent. Yeah, for sure. Right. So it's kind of in their space. Um, so they, they basically create x-ray, x-ray technology, x-ray, x-ray tubes. And, uh, so one of the things that they're innovating on is kind of healthcare technology. Also out of that, you know, comes the electronics business where there's Philips TVs, uh you know again philips cd players so on and so forth um and then just recently actually uh since in the 2000s um they basically sold off all of those other businesses to concentrate on the healthcare business so yep. they were in a situation where i think the healthcare business at the time that they made this decision represented about 40% of their revenue but it was clearly the place that was growing
1: no no no, no. that's that's the future yeah
2: yeah that was absolutely the future and the rest of it, like the light bulbs and the electronics, were not the future for them. Uh, and they could see that those revenues were declining while the healthcare technology uh, was really good. So they essentially did the same thing as Sears, but in the right way, which is they spun off the lighting business. So you could Phillips lighting still exists, they just don't own it. They spun it off. Yeah. Um, they spun that off in a, in a, you know, in a um in an IPO uh themselves. And then um they also spun off the electronics business so they just got rid of both of those things and now philips actually is a healthcare technology business
0: right that is
2: what they are so and they're doing great by the way they yeah. they're doing great so they saw this thing they're like well it represents 40% of the revenue but we can see that that's where the future is and the other stuff is is actually failing so that and if you think about it that's actually a harder decision because at sure. the time uh, the financial services business was basically representing like a 100% of Sears businesses because the retail business at that point was really faltering uh, and it was, it was absolutely losing ground. Um, and so that seems like an easier decision. So, you know, you can see both sides of the coin when you do this. Well, the, the problem is that most people aren't like Phillips. We're right. much more Sears like.
1: Right, so i uh, yeah, I wonder, like is that a good board of directors, is that a uh whip smart c e o is it a little bit, bit of all of that you no know,
2: i i wonder i mean i i wonder i think it's probably a little bit of a just so story, but look the the Phillips brothers started that innovation lab right you know r- right away, and so they you know one of the things that we need to recognize um is that is this sort of distinction between explore and exploit, so um exploration is like let me look around and see what's around right and exploit mm-hmm. is let me do the thing that I'm already doing so not exploit in like the bad like exploitation like right, 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 uh, manipulation right, right. kind of way just like i found something good let me keep doing it right yeah. i got a good thing going let me go with it and um explore exploit one of the like uh the way that uh, game theorists and, and mathematicians think about actually relates back to ants. So um, weird, mm-hmm. I know. But when you see ants come into a new territory, they're, the forager ants are kind of scattered around, sort of exploring and looking around. And then one of the forager ants will find some food, like a piece of watermelon or something, um, will bring the food back to the colony. And on the way back, they lay down a pheromone trail. And then another ant will pick up that pheromone trail. They'll go, if there's still food there, they'll, they'll get the food. And then when they come back, they lay a pheromone trail down on top of that. And you can see that pheromone trail gets strengthened until we sort of get that classic, like the ants go marching one by one, right? Hurrah, hurrah. Um, so we think of those ants, uh, marching in a line. So that would be exploitation, right? You found a good food source and you're, you got a good thing going. Like, let's keep with it. But when you actually look at the colony, when you look at the behavior of the colony, what you'll see is that about 10 to 15 percent of the forager ants just haven't seemed to got, have gotten with the program. So mm-hmm. here you have like 85 percent of them are marching in a line toward this great food source. But 15 percent of them seem to be malingering. Right. <laughs> like they're wandering around like, I don't know what Uh And it's like the ant anarchists. Mm-hmm. So so the question is, like, what's going on? Like, are do, do, do they have they lost their sense of smell? I don't know what's going on. Um, and it turns out that, no, they have not done that. This is actually sort of programmed into the colony that they continue exploring for other food sources. Why? Because the world is an uncertain place and someone might clean the watermelon up from their deck. Right. So when that goes away, it's really good that you have some portion of the colony continuing to explore whatever is out there because uh, then you're more likely to have a, a backup food source right? You may have something else that you can turn to. And this is really important. Sometimes the new food source that you find is better than the one that you were already using. And at that point, that pheromone trail will start to get, you know, strengthened and people will go over to that. So backup plans can turn out to be plan A's, right? But so this idea of explore exploit, we need to bring into sort of the way that humans think about the world, which is once we start something, we sort of become single-mindedly focused on the thing that we're doing. We can't, we don't, we actually stop exploring. We don't look around for other things to do. And so that makes it really hard for us to switch if we don't even know those things exist. Separate and apart from the stuff that has to do with like our identity, which keeps us on the path like Sears where we don't want to abandon who we are. So if you take somebody, something like Phillips, what may happen is because they had this innovation hub, That you can think about as the 15% of the ants who are going around and exploring, Mm -hmm. right? And so they had that exploratory mindset. They were like, okay, we're a colony of ants and we're a lighting business, but we're gonna set aside some of our resources specifically to start seeing what else is out there and developing and like creating backup plans and other technologies. And in doing so, that may just have been the mindset of the company that allowed them to be a little bit more ant-like in their behavior.
1: Yeah. No, no. I mean, this is, I mean, the parallels, of course, to the world of improvisation, which, you know, teaches you to be a divergent thinker. You're constantly making up new realities with other people. You're doing it in front of audiences. And I think if if there is a, you know, it's not like we have the same casting director for 60 plus years, yet we keep spitting out the stars. And and at a certain point, everyone's going to realize it's like, it's, it's not because of like some magic in the water. It's because they're all trained to be right. incredibly system one, system two, back and forth, back and forth. And, and, and it's such a pro social thing too. So it, like, oh, it makes you good at working with others and people like to be seen and you're doing that. Right. And it's, it checks off all, all these, these boxes. All right. I have kept you for so long. Um, we always end the podcast. Oh, no, it's okay. I told a, you.
2: I, I warned you in advance that I'm very long-winded.
1: Me. And it was and it was fine because we got in the good stories. Okay. We always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. Um do you have one for us or do you have a um a different spin on the yes and story?
2: Yeah, you know, okay, so I mean it depends on right. I mean, obviously I talk about yes and and thinking in yeah. pets, right? Yep. So, you know, so much of it was trying to train myself to say. I see what you're saying and what about this other thing which is really all of poker. So I mean I could give you like a billion examples of yes and in that sense where you hear something and what I think is really important about it if we think about quitting it's one of the things that's hardest for us to quit is our beliefs. Sure. And so if you've played a hand a certain way and someone thinks you should have played it differently it's very hard to be open minded about it. So you have to sort of yes and it and say yes like I hear what you're saying let me think about what that is and let me give you my reasoning for why I did it this way. And can we then have a conversation about it? So I think for me, that 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 is a little bit like mundane because it was literally my everyday life. Because poker, poker is improvisation.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, thing. of course it is.
2: Because <laughs> uh, you can't go in with a plan for a hand. You got to <laughs> do it on the fly, right? Not, not um, unless
1: you've scripted it with a dealer and that seems illegal.
2: That would be completely illegal. Let's okay. not do that. No. But so for me right now, actually... I think that I've taken that mindset, that exploratory mindset so much that I'm actually working on no right now. Okay. <laughs> so I'm working, I'm working on the other thing. So, um, uh, you know, with graduate school, it's like, there, there were a lot of forces that would have brought me back to graduate school, but I said yes to poker and then thought about what I could do with it. And then I, you know, and then it was like, oh yes, I'll, I'll give this talk about how poker might inform risk. And then I got really excited about that and just started doing that a lot. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, sort of everything I've done has been sort of like all around, like saying yes to a whole bunch of stuff, exploring it, being open-minded to things, really trying to be flexible and whatnot. And what I realized is that, uh, I got, I got myself into a point where saying no feels bad.
1: Right. I get it. Because
2: I, I value the, the, I value saying yes, like not in a people pleasing way. I just want to be clear about that, but in a, you always have to be exploring and you have to be open-minded. And, you, and when someone offers you an opportunity that seems cool, you should say yes to it. And recently I've just become very conscious of the tax on my time um, of doing that. And sort of to the point of the book, which may be part of the reason why I wrote the book, thinking about there's all sorts of things that I want to say yes to and all sorts of things I want to explore and I may explore them and throw them out or whatever, but I want to be exploring them. But I also have limited time and attention. And there are other things that I, 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 I really need to think more intentionally about like, what do I want to be spending my time on? One of which is hanging out with my dog, taking hikes to the river, like for real. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So, so I did something that was like really, really hard for me, uh, in, in the spring after I finished the draft of quit is I took, I'm going to put the word semi in front of it. I took a semi sabbatical for three months. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why I say semi is because, uh, some clients still popped up that needed help from me. And, um, I was doing edits on quit and I was also partially writing my dissertation, but let's ignore that part. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I mostly wasn't meeting with clients, which freed up a tremendous amount of time to walk to the river with my dog. Um, and I started to think about, really deeply, like, what does productivity mean? Uh Uh, And is it really just your work product? Or is there all sorts of things that don't have anything to do with anything that's public facing or stuff that you've produced? And I've really come to the conclusion that, like, walking to the river with Otis um, is a highly productive activity and that that's okay. And if that's the thing that I want to do, it's okay to say no to something else. Um, And so that that's really sort of where I've been in my life right now. Uh, which I don't know if that's the answer
1: to your question, but. Um... No, it's a great, it, it, and and one that resonates, I, I literally, there was a former colleague who reached out to me trying to reopen his theater, was looking for money. I don't have money to give to him, then wanted like my time to like brainstorm around. And I'm like, I don't know anything about fundraising. And and he was being very persistent. And I literally, was like a week ago, I said, look, I, I'm time poor right now. Yeah. And I've got to protect my boundaries. And um, I don't see how I can help you. If you want to send me an email, that's a good way for me to let, maybe there is something I can do. And I have not heard back from him. And I, I'm like, I, I risk offending someone, but, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm 56 years old. I have other things that I want to do. I want to have this conversation. I want to read your book and talk to you. And then I want to like create new things here. And like, that's not going to get accomplished if I'm, you know, on zoom calls with people, That's not relevant.
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, I think, yeah, exactly. I think that's kind of, I think I have overextended myself in the past because I do see the value of, of the, the yes and explore. Yeah, for sure. Right. And, um, and the, the open-mindedness of, yes, I hear what you're saying. I think that's really interesting and let's have an exchange. Cause I want to tell you about what my point of view is, which is so much of the part of, of you know, learning the learning process in poker. Yeah. Um, but I'm super time poor. Exactly. Yeah. And
1: both I, things can be true.
2: Both things can be true. And I'm really, really trying really, really hard to say no more right now.
1: The book is called quit the power of knowing when to walk away. Annie Duke, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Well, thank you for having me. This was like super fun
1: getting the yes and podcast is produced by the second city and wgn radio we are supported at the second city by mike farinaccio and colleen fahey our show is produced by andrew harris at wgn the music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by jukebox the ghost if you're interested in knowing more about the second city you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com